continuing our thought from this morning, the idea of heroes, God's heroes, I want us to consider a few things. Be opening your Bible, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to notice a passage there in just a few moments. As a landmark separating the two great covenants which, with which God had uh, covenanted with mankind, He placed the old rugged cross. The cross is the focal point of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching. And it was upon the cross that our Savior gave His life, being an innocent man, going to the cross and laying down Himself to pay for the sins and the crimes against God. And because of that unimaginable act of selfless love, Paul made a statement regarding that. Galatians 3 verse 13, he said, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Peter also paid homage to that great act of love by declaring 1 Peter 2 verse 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. The cross, far from being a very beautiful thing, was in fact a very ugly thing. It was a barbaric uh, device to torture and to murder. It was reserved for malefactors, for murderers, and for vile men of every kind and nature. It was also associated with infamy and shame. It was and is today a symbol of shame, of suffering, of sorrow, and of death. And we closely connect the things that happened to our God, our Lord, and that cross. And it was to that death that Jesus went in this life, in this physical world, having to pay a payment so that we might have eternal life. Not because He was forced to, but because He chose to. So as we continue our idea of heroes, because of the action of the cross, we have multitudes of heroes who live in present day and even more who have lived in the past. But Paul spoke about a form of godliness that men embraced, but it was not from God. Let's turn our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 1. Paul stated, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, he said, turn away. How can we determine if one's form of godliness is that which Paul and the other inspired writers said that we ought to embrace. How can we identify that? 
The title of the sermon tonight is Characteristics Every Hero Has. We're not going to speak of every characteristic. It is not going to be an exhaustive list, but I want us to talk about some that I thought might be uh, predominant. When we look at this idea of character characteristics of heroes, we uh, take, for instance, heroes we might uh, consider in the physical world, in physical ways that they are heroes. We often see bravery. I think that, that heroes... Uh, must have some form of bravery. Not that they are never afraid or that fear doesn't enter into their lives, but they are able to overcome that fear and move ahead. We might consider even uh, some sort of physical strength that uh, a lot of heroes may have. Not always, but at least enough to get the job done. And there may be any number of things that we might consider the characteristic of a hero. Well, I want us to consider some things that are unique to God's heroes. We're talking spiritually. I think we need to know those things. We need to understand them, and we need to make them a part of our lives. When we look at this idea of people holding to a form of godliness that is not from God, we need to be able to make that differentiation. We need to be able to identify, and that's, after all, the point of an identifying mark, isn't it? But for an identifying mark to be any good, it must be able to be seen and understood. We must be able to see a mark, a characteristic, and identify that with whatever the topic or the subject may be. And the same is true with spiritual heroes. So, let's say someone claims to hold a form of godliness, and that it is from God, and they simply make the statement that, we believe in having godly families. We believe in spending time with our families and making sure that we promote that. Okay, I think God would uh, is absolutely in favor of that, but is that an only identifying mark? What about someone says uh, an identifying mark of a godly hero is that they care for those who live in the community and they want to do things that would aid people in that community. Well, I think God absolutely supports that. Uh, when we have opportunity, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. But is that in and of itself an identifying mark? Can we say that we love Jesus, we love the Father, and we want to abide by His commandments and live in those only without bringing in any kind of outside influence? Well, I think God expects that. But in and of itself, just because someone states that, does that mean that's what the organization truly believes? Can someone stand up and, and claim to be a godly individual or a member of his church and make those exact statements, and then we begin to look into their ideology or their theology, and we all of a sudden determine that's not really what they believe. After all, I think most people who are reasonable would say, we need to promote godly families. I think most people who are reasonable would say, I think we need to support our communities and the people within our communities and help where we can help. I think most people who are reasonable that have any kind of a sense of 
uh, loyalty toward God, whether they're New Testament Christians or not, would say, I, I believe in God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We want to follow their directives and their directives only. But that doesn't mean that's what happens. So we must be able to look beyond exactly the general characteristics that someone may claim to have and look for those identifying marks that can be seen. The first identifying mark I want us to notice for a few moments tonight is godly heroes, and remember these are characteristics that every hero has, godly heroes bear. They bear the cross. They bear their crosses. And how do we go about doing that? Well, we can bear the cross in any number of ways, and I want us to notice a couple tonight. We bear the cross by working. Have you ever seen people who were cross-wearers instead of cross-bearers? You see it throughout the world, don't you? Watch a baseball game. Before your favorite player can actually get to the plate and bat, they have to move all those gold chains out of the way and get those crosses out of the way and stick them down into their shirt because they swung and those four or five chains came out and they are cross-wearers. They're demonstrating, at least on some kind of an elemental level, that they do believe in the God of heaven and Christ Jesus. But the New Testament church about which we read in Acts chapter 2, they were cross-bearers, right? They didn't wear a cross around their neck, and I'm not diminishing that someone could wear a cross in some way. What I'm talking about is we're to be cross-bearers not cross-wearers. We don't normally wear a noose around our necks, do we? We don't normally wear uh, a miniature electric chair around our necks, do we? Now they have lethal injection. We don't normally walk around with a hypodermic needle around our necks, do we? That's what the cross was. We need to understand that, don't we? The cross was a killing device. It was something that was ugly, something that was torturous, something that was murderous, and something that brought about the possibility of salvation. We need to embrace the cross. But we need to understand that simply having a cross is not being a cross-bearer. The shallow pretense of some religious people can be seen when they simply wear the cross and they do not bear the cross. Now, we see it in a lot of places, don't we? We see them on church spires. We may have them on our church letterhead, on the neck of a member, but we need to see those identifying marks in our own lives. A very unique characteristic of godly heroes is they bear the cross themselves, right? And we have to be vigilant in our bearing the cross through our working, through our reaching out. The new way we way of life or the new walk we spoke of this morning after having obeyed the gospel, uh, Romans 6, 3, and 4, that needs to be seen in our lives. That's a lifestyle change, isn't it? And so when we talk about godly heroes bearing the cross through their work, we see that as they reach out to those around us. Here's another very unique identifying mark when it comes to bearing the cross. We see it in the way we worship appropriately. 
We do a myriad of things when we worship. We do perform five acts of worship. Prayer, it's a great blessing. God expects it. We need it. And Paul spoke of it. Luke also said, Acts 2 verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Prayer is a communion between the disciple and God. Nothing could be greater. Paul said to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. God expects us to pray, but prayer is not a unique identifier in God's heroes when it comes to initial salvation. We cannot pray our way into heaven. We have to obey our way into the Lord's church. Once we become members of the church, then God expects us to engage in prayer. Ananias went in and spoke to a a fasting, praying Saul of Tarsus. He had been praying for three days, yet he was lost. Does that diminish that God expects his people to pray? Absolutely not. But Saul had to first become one of God's people. And he couldn't get it done through the avenue of prayer. Obedience to the gospel. Then God begins to hear and act upon the prayers of the faithful. John 9.31 God does not hear the prayers of sinners. That doesn't mean he doesn't recognize that they're praying. It means he does not act upon those prayers. That's a very special, unique characteristic between God's heroes, the faithful, and God. Not just the general world, those who are living in sin. We also sing in our worship. The writer of Hebrews said, By Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, Hebrews 13, 15. We look in Colossians 3, 16, Ephesians 5, 18, and 19, and we understand very quickly exactly how we offer the fruit of our lips. We simply do it through singing. We, we engage in offering music to God. We just simply do not use an outside instrumental accompaniment to that. Why? Why do we not do that? Because God wants the fruit of our lips. That's what He asked for. That's what he commanded, and that's what the faithful of God will offer to him. What about observing the Lord's Supper? If you look throughout the denominational world and, and the religious world in general, and there are different and uh, uh, sundry ways in which that is observed. Uh, one particular denomination may use uh, loaf bread and water. One particular denomination may observe the Lord's Supper once a year, or another may do it twice a year. Someone may do it quarterly. But how are we supposed to do it? I think a, a unique identifier or characteristics of God's people is they do it the way the Bible is explained uh, in the pages to do it. Now, the cross, again, is the focal point, right? It is on the cross where Christ died so that we might gain heaven. And it is on the first day of the week when we memorialize the events of the cross. We take the, the uh, unleavened bread, we drink the, the fruit of the vine, the, the grape juice, and we do it on the first day of the week. Now notice Acts 20 verse 7. Very plain. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. How many weeks have a first day? Every one. Every one. And if we wanted to break down the construction of the sentence, this is a recurring action. It's not a one-time thing. It's a recurring action. The Bible tells us that the, the, the early church came together to honor the memory of memorialize, and that's what we've been talking about today, memorializing those who gave their lives. Christ gave His life. Whereas secularly, we observe Memorial Day once a year. That's fine. That's okay. Uh, I think we ought to honor those who've fallen in battle. But when it comes to spiritual heroes, we, we recognize and memorialize Christ every single first day of the week. We also contribute. We offer of our means. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you, upon the first day of the week, when you come together, let everyone lay by him in store. Again, we go back. How many first, how many first days are in a, or how many weeks have a first day? Every single one. And so we may come together and pray often. We may come together and sing often. We may come together and and preach and teach and do those types of things, but we, one time a week, come together to offer of our means. We're not going to do it on Wednesday night. We're not going to do it during a, a, a gospel meeting. We're going to do it on the first day of the week, every week, because that's what God has asked us to do. The word preached that we see in Acts 20, verse 7, means reasoned. Paul reasoned with them until midnight. I'm sure that he uh, answered questions, explained difficulties, satisfied doubts in the minds of the brethren, and that he did it based on Scripture. He reasoned with them within the Scripture, not what the, the, the Jewish customs were. He took the Word from God and reasoned in that way. We're given a little insight into what took place in the worship assembly when we consider these things. And we see the real-life application of Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 being carried out in real life. Another unique characteristic that I want us to notice uh, of God's heroes is that they boast. They bear... They also boast. And someone says, well, I thought boasting was wrong. Well, it can be, can it? I guess it depends all about what we are boasting. We need to understand what Paul boasted about. Paul boasted about the power of the gospel, the power of God. We talked about the the cross being the focal point. Now, let's back up a few years and let's be reminded of Moses giving his life for the cause and God not allowing him to go into the promised land. And he buried him on top of that mountain. The grave of Moses was wrapped in secrecy. Why do you imagine that was the case? Well, we're not told exactly why it was, but I imagine given the propensity for idol worship among Israel, they might have enshrined his grave. And they might have made pilgrimage to his grave, and they might have worshipped at his grave. Now, whereas 
Moses' grave was enshrined in secrecy. The cross was laid out for everyone to see and to understand. And so we remember it and we understand it. And we understand the preaching of the cross means, goes way beyond that, that wooden piece of executionary material, doesn't it? It's what happened on the cross. Christ laid down His life. He allowed Himself to be murdered so that we might live. God's heroes boast of the power of, cross, of the cross. Paul spoke of its very true value, didn't he? Romans 5.10, We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, he said, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. He went on to say, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So we want to boast about the power of the cross. But why is it powerful? It's not powerful because of the construction material. It's powerful because it propitiates. It was the very and only acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 4, the the writer affirmed for us, for it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. The sacrifice had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the sacrifice had to be of a perfect motive. And what was that motive? that people might be saved, that they might go to heaven. Paul stated, Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want us to notice one final unique characteristic. Heroes, God's heroes, believe. They bear, they boast, and they simply believe. The New Testament church believed in the facts, based on fact, not based on myth. I want us to to think about something that I think is unique to the denominational or the religious world. Most preachers in the denominational world remind me of the statement that Christ made, Matthew 23, 15. He said they would compass sea and land to make one proselyte. Of course, he was talking about the Jews. They would compass sea and land to make one proselyte. But here's something that is very common and very non-unique among the, the denominations in the world. As soon as they are able to convince one prospect to join, and that's exactly what it is, they're not added to that organization, they immediately begin to explain that the church is the church is the church. It just does not make any difference of which one one is a part. Now make, understand that statement again. I think this is a wonderful application. Christ said that the Jews would compass sea and land to make one proselyte. They wouldn't let sea or land travel of any, any kind stand between them and making a proselyte. We see it throughout the world today, and I think the church is, uh, is, is kind of behind. We need to get busy. We need to do a little more. But the denominational world, they'll go all the way around the world to convert someone to that particular denomination, and just as soon as they do, they say one church is good enough. 
And I'm not disparaging anybody in their belief system. They may believe it sincerely, but that doesn't mean that's what God has directed us to do. So I want us to understand this. Christ said, I will build my church. And I believe that. He died for that church. Does that make it essential? That was a huge price, wasn't it? Here's something that, that hurts me when, when I am in conversation. I, readily, people will agree. Jesus purchased the church with His own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. Readily, they will say that He gave Himself for it, Ephesians 5, 25. And then they'll say, one is as good as another. Have you ever heard the term white elephant a white elephant is something that is very expensive but very useless a white elephant came uh, to be known and that term arose from southeast asian monarchs if a monarch uh, if you fell into good favor with a monarch they would give you a white elephant a white elephant was considered to be uh, something that was uh Sacred, something that was a sign of the monarch's favor. And understanding that it was sacred, you couldn't work that elephant. You couldn't do anything but make its life as happy as possible. So while it was a blessing that you were in the favor of the monarch, it was a curse because you had to keep this elephant up. You couldn't get anything out of the elephant. So it was worthless to you. It cost you something, but it was worthless. It cost you money, it cost you time, but it didn't mean anything. Now, are we going to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that His church doesn't mean anything? It's not a white elephant, is it? It is the one true church of which He spoke in Matthew chapter 26. Paul said, Ephesians 5, 23, Colossians 1, 18, that He is the Savior of the body... The body is the church. It is extremely important. There is no salvation outside the church. The church won't save you. Christ saves the individual, and through that act of salvation, He adds that person to the church, Acts 2.42. Without the church, there is no salvation. Because when He died on the cross, He established the church of which we spoke this morning, about 3,000 were added on the day of Pentecost following His resurrection. God's heroes have unique characteristics regarding their beliefs. One unique characteristic is not only is it based on fact, they hold to that form of godliness of which Paul said we ought to hold. They will not accept something that someone has manufactured. They're not going to take anyone's word for it. They're going to have to see it in the Bible, and I think that is a remarkable trait to have. I don't know of any prominent denomination that will accept someone into their ranks without their form of baptism, whether that's a sprinkling or it may even be immersion or whatever the case may be. Now, here's the thing. It's just like the white elephant and the church. They will not allow someone into their ranks, but as soon as they get a recruit, they'll send men and women to seminaries all over the world so they can be trained 
to teach others that Christ didn't mean what He said in John 3, verse 5. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. How many times have you heard someone say, salvation or or baptism is not necessary for salvation? I've been hearing that my whole life. That's not what Jesus said in John 3, 5. That's not what he said in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. I believe that the denominations of the world, and again, I'm not trying to disparage any member of a denomination. I think they're very sincere and they absolutely need the gospel. But they try to distance themselves. And when I say they, I'm not talking about the the, the general member. I'm talking about the leadership. The leadership. They know better. I believe they try to distance themselves between what they believe and what Peter said on Pentecost. Acts 2.38 Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think they tried to distance themselves from later when he described the effects of baptism. The like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us. Not to put in the way of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God. 1 Peter 3.21 I think most will agree with the Holy Spirit on the fact of faith being necessary. I think most will agree with the Holy Spirit that one cannot continue to live in sin, that repentance is absolutely necessary. I think most will agree that confession unto salvation is exactly what Paul said, Romans 10.10. And then we get to this final step, And that characteristic goes out the window. And we learn all of a sudden that baptism is not essential. Is that the only characteristic that uh, godly heroes have? Absolutely not, it is not. But it is one that must be there. The Lord's church cannot be grown by becoming like the world's denominations. We spoke about the denominations within the Jewish religion this morning in class. There there were at least five sects of the Jewish religion. They taught different things. That's not what God wanted. There was one kind of Jew. And then by the time people got through with it, there were at least five kinds. That's not what God expects. And we see that throughout Christianity as well. We need to support what the Bible supports. Be against what the Bible is against. Call Bible things by Bible names. Do Bible things in Bible ways. And then I think we can be certainly pleasing to God. When we think of heroes and characteristics of heroes, they bear the cross. Heroes believe God is who He said He was. And heroes will do the things that God has asked them to do. Be a hero today for God. Obey the gospel or come back to Him in repentance as we stand and as we sing.